Welcome to the Airways Podcast Plus Extension, Season 4, Episode 4. In this episode, Rohan Anand and Vinay Bhaskara engage in a lively conversation with Brian Suvan. Brian is editor of the Airline Observer, a newsletter covering the business of airlines, including route networks, revenue management, and onboard and airport products. Rohan, Vinay, and Brian explore the recent headlines making the waves in the aviation world. In this episode, they delve into Copa Airlines' earnings and its intriguing partnership with Thai Airways. They also dissect Air Canada's demand for six freedom rights, a strategy that holds uh, potential for the, for the airline's global expansion. Finally, they unravel the complexities of U.S. carriers' expansion into China, examining the strategies, challenges, and implications surrounding this move from Brian's commercial perspective of the industry. So without further ado, here's a commentary with Brian Summers. Um, yeah, I'm flying to Pisa this weekend and I'm taking Lufthansa uh, on the way there in an A340 and on the way back, I'm taking British Airways in the A380. Inshallah, that like all of these routings and, and itineraries won't have an issue. Uh, and I have historically had success with the bid to upgrade thing that European airlines do, where you pay the lowest amount of bid, like anywhere from like $175 to like $500 to go from economy to premium economy or premium economy to business, whatever. So it's worked for me on SAS. It's worked for me on Iceland Air. So I did that low bid uh, for Chicago Frankfurt in May, and I bid 175. And I kept looking at the seat map. I kept looking at the seat map. I did not see that the cabin had a lot of bookings there, which is never again also a good strategy to go by. It's really you need to know someone that's working in the industry uh, that can tell you bookings. What happened was is that I saw that I got rejected. Lufthansa rejected me today. They rejected the bid. Uh, I mean, it was literally, it came in the form of a, like, we're sorry, your credit card is not going to be charged back to your original plan. And I guess what it comes down to is, is that obviously there are higher bidders. Obviously the seat selection uh, map on Lufthansa.com is not a good representation because Lufthansa and British Airways, even in premium cabins, charge you to reserve a seat. Uh, and so even for my flight back on British Airways in the A380, again, inshallah, nothing goes wrong. I'm booked in business that I got using Alaska Miles. And BA is so criminal. They're charging uh, over $100 to reserve your seat in business up until 24 hours. This is the very definition of first world problems. Like, I just, I just want to throw that out there for the record. Okay. I love that you're wearing a Michigan hat, by the way, on this podcast. Because I'm wearing my Notre Dame stuff. You're wearing a Michigan hat. We got Brian Sumers on the call, which is like awesome for us because, hey, you know, Brian's a Northwestern, I almost a Tiger, a Northwestern Wildcat alum and also a... Well, the the funny part of this is that I'm technically a UChicago alum, 
I have a Michigan allegiance because my dad went to Michigan and I was born on Michigan's campus and U Chicago disbanded its football team in like 1935. And then to make it even funnier, I'm actually wearing a, like a UT Austin t-shirt because oh, I like, line, grew up a UT on. fan. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up my story because I do want to introduce Brian. And the last thing I'll say is, is that, so I did something today that is a gamble. Because I'm not going to get to fly Lufthansa Premium Economy, I'm not going to get a choice of meals. Because Lufthansa has cheapened its economy class experience even more so than it did already 20 years ago. It literally, Lufthansa, ugh, that's a whole other thread. So I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to book a special meal. And so I booked a Hindu non-veg meal. So let's see if that Wait, comes what? through for me. Hindu non-veg meal? It was an option on Lufthansa. And I'm like, you know what? If that means that I get chicken tikka or I get like even some delicious paneer, I will be not only served first, I will also hopefully be uh, able to enjoy something that is better than the um, spaghettios that they serve in economy, you know, or the chef boyardee occasionally with a, you know, little canned turkey on top feel that they've given Lufthansa economy. So... Anyway, that's a great start to our podcast. Brian, yeah, uh, I, our, our I'd love, guest didn't I, even get to say anything for the whole yeah, first few I, minutes there. taking up space. Brian, what's up? How are you? So glad you're able I'm to join good. us. I had one question for you, though. Have you ever won a bid on Lufthansa or a Lufthansa Group airline before? This is the first time I've done it. I've flown Lufthansa okay. many times in business, economy, the, the, uh, between the two. Not first yet. Uh, so I, this is the first time. Then you probably just got turned down because your bid wasn't robust enough. Uh, but recently I interviewed the CEO of PlusGrade, which runs the back end uh, bidding platform for a lot of these airlines. And he said, you know, uh, when when people win too much, airlines just shut them off. Right. You, you, you shouldn't expect that you're going to win, even if you should win. So they say not today, not next week. You lose for a little bit and then you can win. And, and what's interesting is that the corollary, he said, is true. So if people have lost a lot of consecutive bids, uh, the airline may know that and they may let them win that bid to premium economy because the airline calculates that once you upgrade at a discounted price to premium economy once, you're much more likely to buy it outright in the future. So a lot of losing bids isn't necessarily a bad thing. You may win the next time. Well, the U.S. carriers don't have a bid system right they, they have the ability to buy up but none, none, none of the u.s carriers have a bid system for premium and and um business right right you know somebody's going to come after us and send us an email i believe spirit uh, participates in one of these programs of course that's not business class but yeah the u.s airlines generally have built their own uh systems that allow you to uh, buy up uh, but they don't play around with it with third-party bidding you know, to be I'm fair, the big front seat probably has more legroom than some Oasis first class seats, but that's neither here nor like, there. Truthfully. Well, as you said, Vinay, last episode or two episodes ago, I can't remember about the uh, Spirit big front seat experience was actually just the legacy from when they were more of a hybrid carrier. And I've noticed this upgrade situation, uh, pay to upgrade that has happened on uh, United and American for me that have worked out. And as recently as like March, where it was $150 to upgrade from economy to first on a United flight from Charlotte to Chicago. And they are displacing golds and other elites and sort of making the value of that 
upgrade experience a little less tangible or accessible to them by allowing no status people like me to be able to do that. Uh, As a United One K, I really, really appreciate hearing that. Yeah, man. I mean, I was I was Starlines Gold ten years ago. Look at me now. I'm a person with nothing but a bunch of spirit miles. So. In that note, I think that we should dive into our first couple topics for today's episode. So, Hellwing, take it away. Or actually, before we begin, Vinay, what has been new with you? And Brian, uh, maybe before Vinay, tell us more about like what's been going on with you. How's your summer been? Well, before we even get to that, why don't we like take a 35-second step back? Um, as you can tell, this is not the most rigorously professionally recorded podcast all the time. But we should Hogan give Brian a quick moment to introduce himself um, and share a little bit more about his background and how he covers and intersects with the airline industry. Uh, sure. I am uh, Brian Summers. Uh, right now, I write an airline business newsletter called uh, The Airline Observer. You can find it at theairlineobserver.com. Uh, I've covered airlines for a little bit more than 10 years. Most recently, I was at uh, Skift covering the global airline industry before that aviation week. Before that, uh, I worked at a chain of newspapers here where I live in the Los Angeles area uh, covering LAX, a dysfunctional municipal entity. Uh, Absolutely fascinating thing to do and something that I never want to do again. Uh, I've always been a journalist. I've been doing this for about uh, 20 years since I graduated from uh, Northwestern. I love what I do. I love asking questions. And uh, you know, I'm a little bit less polite than than some of the other people that that cover the industry. If I if I see BS, I'm, I'm going to call airline people out on it. I love the industry. Don't get me wrong, uh, but you know, there are some airlines that are not very well run, and people should know about it. Okay, so while we're here, do you have anything to call Vinay or I out about just to like you know clear the air in case you got some beef? <laughs> yeah, so I don't know you uh, very well. I do know Vinay uh, from being a, a, a very precocious high school student a very long time ago. And I know you went on and, and, and did something else with your career, which which is probably a, an excellent idea for, for lots of reasons, especially financial ones. Uh, but it's good to see you back on the beat here. Yeah, Vinay is great. And it's actually wonderful that over the years, I think that I've been present in this community of bloggers and writers and journalists and aviation enthusiasts and in and out of the industry reporting and connecting and flying and experiencing. And it it is a small world. It's a small community and people know each other. You don't share who you follow or who comes across your desk. And so for those reasons, I think that part of the gift of having this podcast is that we all stay connected on topics that we probably in and out of reporting regularly would keep up with and, 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 and love to talk about. Awesome. Yeah, that was um, entirely too kind, Brian. Rohan asked for a call out, but um, I appreciate that. Um, I actually do have someone to call out, which is um, also very much so my brand. Um, and that is American Airlines, because uh, today I had a coworker try to book a flight from DFW to Boston. Last flight of the night, the only flight out of DFW, which, by the way, the last flight you can get from DFW to get to Boston in the same day, nonstop or connecting, is at 7 p.m., which I think is ludicrous because some of us have, you know, longer work days and need the ability to get on a plane after work. Whatever. Neither here nor there. Tried to book a flight at 5.13 p.m. Central Time and was um, <clears throat> first not allowed to do so by American's app. 
then given the runaround by a chat agent with an Americans app, and then walked into the terminal at DFW and still could not book a flight. And, you know, he was buying a last minute first class ticket, $700, $800 out of pocket. And that's revenue that American is just not going to see because he's going to fly someone else tomorrow. So it is fascinating is that you say this uh, because this happened uh, in my family uh, last week and it was quite problematic. So I, I do think the industry needs to get its act together. And in this particular case, uh, if any of you have kids, you know how important this is. It was uh, our nanny. And our nanny was stuck in Dallas, and Delta canceled her flight. And so I'm a, I'm a travel hacker, right? So I said, you know, we need you tomorrow. Go over to Southwest. Their flight is delayed by hours. Try to buy a ticket. And they said, we don't have a way to sell you a ticket. The airplane is here. Nobody's boarded. Nothing has happened. It's not leaving for a few hours. So she called reservations. Same thing. She went to the lobby. Same thing. And, you know, this all sounds like sour grapes, but like in a world where we all know that this summer there's some irregular operations and you have airlines that don't have interline agreements, you know, basic decency is saying like if somebody wants to buy a walk up ticket at the last minute because the other airline canceled their flight, uh, find them a way to sell them the ticket. I mean, the, the brittleness of airline tech in general is always just fascinating because to your point, right, like, um, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking and talking and used to spend a lot of time writing about the airline industry, but um, I chose to not enter it. And, and part of the reason why is as someone who's sort of technologically inclined and um, very smart. Have you met Vinay in person? Have you dealt with no. Vinay's antics in person? Because I I've been victimized. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll have to fix that the next time I'm in LA, but or, or you're in Dallas for that matter. Um, the the idea of working in an industry that is so um, antiquated in its approach to technology, to in some ways business strategy, um, in to, to how it thinks about a lot of different things is just, it's it's night and day. And obviously you can't compare a startup to an established corporation. And that's where I've spent most of my career. But even if I were to compare some of the corporate environments that I've seen friends and family members work in, right, across pharma. My, da my dad worked in pharma um, on the technology side. And even there, there was sort of more flexibility um, and openness to innovation than, than there is at the, at the airline sometimes. And it's, and it's really frustrating. Right. And also media for Brian. I mean, me media and the digital evolution of media and reporting. And as you mentioned, calling people out. I mean, that in and of itself is even more flaky and fickle than the airline industry in its own way and broadly speaking. So props to you. Sorry to cut you yeah, off. Yeah, you, you managed to pick the the, co the combination of two <laughs> really um, <laughs> interesting industries to to dip your toes into. With that said, uh, shall we dive into our topics for this episode? Because there's a lot of good ones to speak through. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's been some interesting news the last couple of weeks, and I do want to leave some time towards the end um, for us to just hear more from Brian about his his journey and um, what I thought was a, a pretty courageous decision to step away from one of the established brands and, and strike out on your own. Get up to speed on the commercial aviation industry with the top stories of the week by subscribing for free to the Airways NOTAM newsletter. 
you won't have to worry about missing a thing. Every new edition of the Airways NOTAM goes directly to your inbox. Go to airwaysmagazine.substack.com slash subscribe. That's airwaysmagazine.substack.com slash subscribe. So the first topic that I think we want to get into with you, Brian, is uh, the most recent earnings reports from Copa Airlines down in Panama. Um, You had an article over on your newsletter about um, the really strong results that Copa saw um, across the first half of, of 2024. I was curious as to what some of your takeaways were from, um, you know, the earnings themselves and also how Copa's execs talked through them and talked about the market conditions they're seeing um, on the earnings call. Yeah, this is a an interesting earnings season um, because if we talk about the airlines that are making money, uh, some of them are historically very poorly run and have made poor decisions and are still making a lot of money because of things that are happening outside of their control. Then you have other airlines like Copa Airlines based in Panama that's making, you know, big over 20% operating margin, big for an airline, um, and is taking advantage of many of the same things. You know, international travel demand is is booming right now, but is also historically a very well-run airline. And I, I don't know how many people who listen to this read my newsletter, and maybe I, I take this too seriously in my newsletter, but you know, I have pointed out that a lot of the most successful airlines in the world over time know exactly what they are and then do it. So you have an airline like you know Ryanair that that never went even the slightest bit upscale, never never really straight. I, I guess a little bit they, they they bought an airline that 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 flew Airbuses, but essentially it's a seven thirty seven airline. It's essentially what it's always been. And you have Copa which has this hub of the Americas between North and South America, only flies 737s. You know, there are clearly places that they could go, Europe, where maybe in the short term they could make some money, but they say, no, simplicity is the best. And, you know, they're being rewarded for it. It's an airline that probably has had, you know, some business traffic, but has never relied too much on it. Um, an airline that's that's strong for the moment with with the VFR traffic, with the leisure traffic, and Latin America is booming. And you know we we have to be honest here. And I I don't know if anybody is a is a Marty St. George fan. You know Marty St. George was at JetBlue and and now he's at Latam as chief commercial officer. We all most of us we love Marty, but you know the big players in Latin America for a long time have not been uh, in the best shape. And for, for, for years now, Copa has run, you know, an on-time operation that, that meets its numbers. And so it's doing well now, um, but it's been doing well for a long time. And it's, it, 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 it's a very impressive place. And uh, I, I, I say this as somebody who recently approached Copa for an interview and they were like, we don't talk to trades. Um, mm. But I respect what they do, so good yeah. for them. If you look at Panama City in general, just kind of like the proportion of traffic that Copa operates at Tokumen Airport, the fact that the airport has been so underinvested in terms of infrastructure to make it a nice experience up until recently just speaks to the fact that whatever Copa has done out of there, 
has worked for it for a very long time. Uh, you can't really say the same about Bianca and Bogota. Latam is all over the place. Goal is all over the place. I think that Azul is somewhere in the middle. So you're right. I mean, the, the Latin American aviation sector in and of itself could be a podcast. And I really appreciated in your commentary about it that the 24% operating margin, 24.1% operating margin factor for an airline that operates to as many routes as it does into as many places with as much risk as possible with the connecting model, with the traditional business model, yet doing it Southwest style with one type of aircraft and having it's not exactly it, Southwest style, right? They, they it have, does they have, have flatbed seats on the max. We're talking about not a flatbed seat. I ever talk, want to sit in again, but talk, it's a flatbed seat. Right. We're talking about the 737 factor, the sticking to one fleet type of factor, not the business model itself when it comes to the in-flight product. But I mean, this is also an airline that is part of an alliance. This is an airline that almost went into a JV with Avianca and with United, but that has kind of unraveled, right? And finally, I'll say this. It's also an airline that once upon a time was partially owned by Continental Airlines. And let's not forget that same Continental Airlines sort of management, whatever, went on to lead United and looking where that led to. Different management team, right? That that relationship with Continental was like the Bethune days, right? Right, right. Go ahead, Brian. No, I, I had a horrible flashback when I was following the Copa Airlines uh, earnings call because I didn't have the best relations with with United after the merger, and uh, I, my guess is they took some some nomenclature from Continental back in the day. So they still uh, refer to uh, all, all these airlines talk about the great work that their employees did during the quarter, but they they talked about the great work their coworkers did during the quarter, and nobody else used that term except uh, Continental, and I I needed like a trigger warning. Um, but that, that was a very different, <laughs> the most millennial thing that has ever been said on this podcast today. I have to admit, I've been a like trigger warning, even though you make fun of me and think that I'm super woke and all that, that is by far the first time a trigger warning has been issued on this podcast. And by the famous Brian Sumers, no less, I think we've made it in the world. I feel so, so good. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I think it, that was a different continental team. First of all, like it, it was the, the continental co relationship predated Smizek and like that era of post merger United leadership, which also gives me flashbacks as a United frequent flyer. Um, the thing that I want to kind of dig into with Copa a little bit more that I thought was really interesting is like is two pieces. First, um, the you 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 hit on this idea of dysfunction amongst the Latin American carriers. And I've always thought that a really underrated piece of why Copa is so successful is that not only are they able to capture VFR traffic from either end, right? You know, Latin American folks visiting Central America and the US and vice versa, or South American folks visiting Central America and the US and vice versa, um, Americans vacationing down South, they also do a particularly good job of not just reaching price-sensitive residents of countries like Brazil and Argentina and Venezuela and Colombia, but even sort of affluent premium leisure travelers from those countries and taking them to places like Cancun, Punta Cana, wherever. And because you've got 737, you can do that in a, in a, in a really cost-effective way. I mean, I thought, so I thought that was really interesting. And the other thing that was interesting to me is that the, the, the first half of, of, 20, of, of the year, 
includes one portion, you know, the January to March period, which is like a peak period, right? That's the, the Southern Hemisphere summer. And then it includes a second portion, which is kind of this interesting shoulder season where it's not quite summer peak in the U.S. for the most part. Maybe June qualifies as that. And it's starting to tail into winter for South America. So it's typically traditionally not as strong of a period for, for Latin American carriers. But Copa, you know, across the two quarters combined, put out literally the best margin in the world as of as of recording. So I thought that was really interesting as well. Well, and I'll also add to that, Danny, the markets that you mentioned, plus some of these, uh, what you would call them developing markets that are not easily reached in places like Paraguay and Bolivia, and secondary markets in Argentina, for that matter, like that is big. That is really big. I, I did find your whole aside in your story about Wingo um, to 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 be pretty entertaining, just because you you it, literally in your preamble you laid out the thesis right. Copa, super simple, seven thirty sevens. They're only flying them in and out of of Panama City. And oh, by the way, here's this like low cost carrier brand with nine seven thirty sevens in Colombia, just like on the side. That probably uh, so will I, I never grow. I don't know why they keep it around, to be honest. Like, what, what, what's the upside there? Like, you know, it, it can't be making money, given what we've seen of Avianca and some of the other low-cost carriers in, um, in, in Colombia. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's about uh, the future. Uh, but if that's the worst mistake that Copa is going to make, it's not so bad. Yeah. I, what I, about- I almost wonder if it's related to, like, slots and gates. Right, some sort of like route authorities, because I, I do know Colombia's for for how fast it's grown. Colombia is more regulated than you would think for a developing market, um, and so I wonder if there's something to do with that that it, that makes it useful to keep Wingo around, even if it's losing money. What about Copa Colombia? Is that like kind of subject to the same sort of scrutiny where it has to be its own entity in order to grow domestically within Colombia, or just? I don't know. Typical Latin America where each individual airline operates a hub has to have a name like Tam Paraguay or Sky Airline Chile or, you know, Avianca Brazil. Post pandemic, I believe Wingo is still a separate operating brand, but Copa Colombia is just the Copa Airlines fleet on certain Colombian routes. Like I I think post pandemic they've they've merged it back in. So it's not something that they treat as its own entity. The other thing I thought was interesting is that insofar as you talk about sort of Copa as the carrier that has the highest margins in the world, um, and there's a really great chart that Jay Shabbat um, over at Airline Weekly, um, I guess your former employer, um, has has put out uh, that sort of is a scorecard of different airlines around the world in terms of Q2 operating margin. The thing that's really fascinating is you look at the top five, right? Copa, Thai Airways, Philippine Airlines, Indigo, and Ryanair. Right. Pegasus, so Pegasus, Pegasus, actually, sorry, I, I don't mean to cut you off in a, but like Jay, shout out to Jay, actually just updated as of seven to seven. On the 15th. So Air Arabia is number one at 27.4%. Okay. Copa is number two at 24.1%, followed by Thai. I mean, what? Thai Airways at 22.9%, Pegasus at 22.4%, and Philippines at what, I mean, also what Philippines at 22.3. Whoa. Sorry. Yeah. Go back to you, Vinay. So 
point uh, I told uh, I was about to give the same incredulous set of of uh, readings of dramatic readings of those numbers. I think the thing that's really interesting is you know Air Arabia, Copa, Indigo, Ryanair, Allegiant, Alaska, Delta. That's your top. That's th- those are the airlines in the top ten that you think of as sort of traditionally well-run airlines, well-run before the pandemic, well-run since the pandemic, well-run-ish during the pandemic. You know, your mileage may vary on that judgment. And then you have Thai and Philippine Airlines. And there are this, there are these incredible outliers that stick out like a sore thump. Um, and I, I have a theory on, on why the numbers look so good for them. But I'm oh. curious if the two of you want to share any observations on that or, or have your own have theories of your own that we can that we can i have around. no clue i'm incredulous what about you brian yeah uh, Vinay, i'm certain that your uh your your theory is right um you know uh one interesting thing is both uh philippine and thai airways went through big restructurings uh during the pandemic so they will tell you that they are lean they are mean and they are ready for the 21st century. I don't think that there's really anybody in the airline industry that believes them. I mean, this is sort of a rising tide lifts all boats uh, situation. You have uh, Asia, which is you know, just coming back. You have you know risk averse Asian airlines that didn't want to add capacity even when they saw things coming back. You had a bunch of Asian airlines that had retired aircraft during the pandemic, so they 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 couldn't get up and running. You have uh, premium leisure as a huge trend right now. And like, if you want premium leisure, where are you going to go except the beach in Thailand and to a lesser extent, the Philippines, but still the Philippines. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it was a little bit ago, but in, in, in last January or January 2023, I went to Singapore and I did a conference and I interviewed uh, the CEO of Thai Airways. And of course, he was talking about the, the great work that the team had done there. Uh, but everybody else in the background was just saying, look, you know, there's just like, there's not enough lift in Asia right now. And I mean, they were almost like laughing. I mean, it, it, there's another airline on, on Jay's list and Jay is a treasure. Um, you know, I think it's in the teens somewhere, Garda, Indonesia, right? I mean, Garuda, you know, there's, yeah. there's airlines on there that just, they don't make any sense. It's of the moment. And the best comparison that I can try to make, and somebody can tell me that if I'm wrong, is like, you know, every U.S. airline was making record profits last year, right? And how long did that last? It lasted like one revenge travel summer, and then some of them deflated back to the mean. And I suspect that we'll see that in Asia, although this could last a little bit longer because Asia was shut down for longer and Asia lasts more capacity. Um, and I'll throw one more airline out there. It's not technically in Asia, but it's like the same idea. Uh, El Al is making big money. Yeah. I mean, come on, El Al, like, um, you know, there's They're no model Astana. there. It, it's like taking people to Israel and not, there's no, there's no connections. It's just a very good time to run an international airline right now. But there is a shiny new Delta Airlines co-chair. So don't, don't, you know, that must be contributing <clears throat> points and points worth of margin with how Delta treats its partners. You don't see the Chinese airlines on here. Japan Airlines and all Nippon are on the lower end. I don't see Cathay Pacific. So you do some, see some correlation with the restrictions in travel pertaining to COVID, right? And the capacity sort of windfall that they got for that. Back to you, Vinay. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no. So I, the thing that's, that's interesting to me, right, is like, I think, um, Brian, you really hit on a lot of what I was going to say in, in, in your, your explanation there. Um, I think they almost backed their way into these profits, right? Because, because during the pandemic, both Philippine Airlines and Thai Airways faced severe financial crunches, right? 
Um, and they had to restructure their fleets and, and make some big changes and pull a lot of capacity out of their home markets. And because the Chinese carriers haven't come back sort of en force en masse, um, I think depending on which traffic flow you're looking at, whether that's into and out of Thailand, whether that's connections into Southeast Asia and India from East Asia, whether that's connections, frankly, from the U.S. through Manila to um, some other uh, uh, ports across Asia, I think what you're really seeing is the combination of they were forced into restructuring their fleets, which meant they couldn't dump capacity back in the way they would normally have pre-pandemic or the way that they did pre-pandemic coupled with the fact that because the Chinese carriers aren't back, there's sort of more demand and capacity discipline, which is sort of, um, you know, never been seen before in Asia in like the last 25 years, right? Given how fast the industry over there has been growing. Um, and so I think, I think it's like, I don't know that I would predict this will continue for five years, but you could see Thai and Philippines do really, really well um, for the next year or two as the capacity crunch slowly dissipates. The thing that is interesting to me is, you know, I would describe the pre-2010 U.S. airline industry and the post-2010 U.S. airline industry. I've often talked about the idea that there's almost like a discontinuity, right? That um, for the first time in a really long time, the crop of executives that started to, to sort of take control and dominate the U.S. airline industry post-2010 actually took the idea of capacity discipline seriously. And they weren't just chasing market share the way most U.S. airlines had been since 1978, right? Since deregulation. Um, but I don't know that that's what's happening at Thai and Philippines. Like, I'd love for it to be the case. I'd love for it to be the case that they found religion about running a good operation and um, thinking smartly about fleet deployment and not having simultaneously like a 7879, an A350-900, an A330-300, an A330-200. Like, Thai Airways pre-pandemic fleet, if you ever want a good laugh, just go, um, go to sort of one of those historical air fleet sites and just look, up, look at the number of different wide-body types they had for, like, for their fleet. And it's... 4600. So, Next to a 787. Um, and, and the thing is, is, it's a really great in-flight product. The the staff and the people, like the actual customer service people are, are wonderful. The Bangkok, you know, lounges and, and just overall experience is is uniquely charming, right? I, I won't say it's perfect, but it's it's very charming um, in its own way. And it's, um, you know, a, a great reflection of the, the hospitality of Thailand as a country. But the idea that they're like permanently going to be a fixture in like the top five of global operating margins is like a bit rich for me to to sign up for. First thing I'd like to say is is that the Latin American airlines are also represented well on this. You got Azul, you got Avianca, even Latam and uh, Volaris on there. You know, in the you know teens ish, and Goal that was also surprising. And then you also have a lot of the low-cost carriers that are very successful, like Wizz Air and Spirit and Southwest on the lower end. What is that also got to do with it? Well, you know, a lot of these airlines talked about it on the earnings calls. Uh, there was just uh, there was some softness uh, in the short-haul market in the summer in, in, in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, you know, Alaska was one of the first to call it out. JetBlue did as well. Uh, some of the U.S. airlines uh, theorized that some of their customers had had gone to Europe over the summer. Uh, it just it just wasn't as strong as last year, uh, and people are are coming up with with different reasons why. Um, but it, it it wasn't the summer people had hoped for. Well, I think it was 
arguably the summer that people had hoped for for long haul carriers like Delta and United. American had a little more wobbliness with how investors reacted to their results. Um, but speaking of long haul um, and continuing to use to, to shamelessly mine your your newsletter for, for content for this podcast, you also wrote a recent story about Air Canada and some of the moves it's been making to grow Sixth Freedom connecting traffic, particularly uh, you know passengers connecting to and from the United States. Um, and as you sort of noted in your in your article. Canada is in a pretty unique position to be able to facilitate those types of connections, especially on um, passengers returning to the United States or flying into the United States because of their transborder preclearance program, which allows folks to clear customs and immigration in Canadian airports, which, frankly, given the state of U.S. customs and immigration at U.S. airports, um, sounds pretty good unless you are lucky enough to have you know global entry or something similar. So I'm curious uh, what your reaction was to, to hearing that strategy um, sort of laid out and um, described by Air Canada, um, and, and what, what some of your takeaways were. Our latest issue is now available at airwaysmag.com shop, where you'll be able to get an Airways digital subscription, find Airways merchandise, and pre-order the 2024 Airways calendar. That's airwaysmag.com slash shop. Yeah, Air Canada has been talking about this uh, sixth freedom strategy for at least probably 10 years at this point. And it's been growing over time. Obviously, they didn't talk about it as much uh, during the pandemic because there really wasn't any long haul traffic. But they basically say, you know, Canada is, is, is a fine economy. It's a fine country. Demand is is really good in the summer, um, but it's kind of a, a stagnant, mature market with a lot of competition. And you know they sit atop geographically, the, you know the, the most lucrative airline uh, economy in the world. And so they've been trying to win a, a bigger share of U.S. traffic for a long time. Uh, there's a a press release that I have up here that says they fly to 51 airports this summer in the United States, and so. You know, if you live in a uh, major airlines hub in the United States, you're probably going to fly the hub carrier unless you want to save money. But, you know, they, Air Canada now flies uh, Sacramento to Toronto. And if you live in Sacramento, you're connecting somewhere, no matter where you're going, long haul. And Air Canada believes that they can win a lot of this secondary traffic secondary city traffic from the U.S., giving people a really nice experience in Vancouver, uh, to a lesser extent, Calgary, Montreal, and and to a pretty big uh, extent in uh, Toronto. I have a question. So, yes, and So, I've had data points now collected between the experiences at Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver over the last couple of years. And my question to you is airport personnel in the increases in the capacities of these airports with transborder to international flows, how have they been able to keep up and have they been able to do so in a way that hasn't created chokeholds on the systems kind of like they have in San Francisco with United or at Newark or others with this increase in capacity or Amsterdam Schiphol for that matter? Let me give you a cop-out answer. You know, I, I am very specialized in what I do. And I say this on my website. I cover the commercial angle 
of global airlines. And if you know anything about the airline industry, the knock on it is that the commercial people don't interact with the operational people. So the commercial people see the revenue in the sixth freedom approach and really don't, by definition, dive in. They dive into the airport experience, but not the operation at the airport, not the throughput, not things like that. And so as a journalist, I become sort of captivated by the commercial angle of this. And I can't really tell you whether airport operations at these airports is is prepared for the traffic. You know, I think that's a a very, very excellently and creatively worded cop-out answer. Um, I will take the bait, however, and say that I don't necessarily think that um, Air Canada, particularly at Pearson, has managed to thread that needle quite as well as I think it would it would like to. There was a really, really funny meme that I saw going around on Twitter. Um, and I think this actually wasn't even an Air Canada person. It was it was an airport exec from Pearson who was talking about how, you know, they've implemented all these like various programs and and um, initiatives to really bring down flight delays and cancellations um, and make the operation more robust. And, and then the cameraman pans up to show the flight board with like I a saw sea of that. red. It was so clever. I saw that. That was amazing. <laughs> But, you know, with, with that caveated, I do think it's it's worth noting um, to, to the point that Brian made that there is just such robust demand from Toronto to a lot of these second and third tier non-hub U.S. cities, right? A city like Raleigh-Durham has, you know, 70, 80, 90 O&D passengers per day. That, and that goes a long way towards filling a flight that, that you can then, you know, fill the gaps in with connecting traffic into Air Canada's global network. Um, and just given how much seemingly endless demand there is for, for Europe in particular, but also um, for, for the Middle East and Africa that are starting to become more important tourist destinations for, for Americans, um, I think that the strategy feels like it, it makes a lot of sense. And, it, and to your point from, from your coverage, it sounds like it's been a very slow and steady build into that. Yeah, yeah. they Brian, said that this was their best quarter ever for Sixth Freedom Traffic, but they didn't really define what that means, so take it with a grain of salt. There's a joke in there somewhere about the NEA and American at JFK. I won't make it. Well, Brian very astutely mentioned also how, and I think, Vinay, you and I had a discussion about this back in the 2016-2017 timeframe when it was relevant, about all this capacity growth and how Air Canada... It's so interesting to compare the U.S. and Canada in terms of just like Canada sometimes can seem like a smaller scale down version of the U.S. And that also entails being a publicly traded company and being a major global alliance member and also having multiple hubs on different coasts that are connected to the world. And how Air Canada's growth and its ambitious plans of capacity growth over those years without seeing the incremental revenue uh, comparison, I guess, in results, was what was generating a lot of skepticism on Wall Street. So with those you know, things kind of said then, Air Canada still went ahead and went forth with that strategy. And it really isn't just Toronto-centric. It is truly Vancouver-centric as well, with Bangkok and Singapore and Dubai added to the list. With the growth in South uh, East Asia, 
being also complemented by more capacity to Australia and New Zealand. Out of Montreal, basically, it's gotten a lot of the primary and secondary markets out of Montreal that are not only just going to Europe, but they're also going to the Middle East and they're also going to Latin America. So Air Canada has really done a fantastic job of capitalizing on the geographies that it has and doing that in terms of creating also a good airport experience. My last comment to that is, interestingly, I loved flying Chicago, Vancouver, Delhi when I did because it literally didn't require me to go through security again for the Vancouver, Delhi flight. When I flew in from Rome through Montreal to Chicago, I went through this very interesting process where you couldn't clear immigration. You were kind of held in a pin until your bag was processed. And it was on a, a LCD screen while you were going through. And it kind of allows you to see the sorting system of different flights in a bank from this Rome flight and other European flights that had arrived. And onward to all the U.S. markets that they're going to, like Minneapolis and Denver and L.A. and Chicago, and New York and Boston and so forth. So as you were as you were going through that, I was looking up um, some flight schedules at um, at uh, at Montreal and just looking at sort of the you know the sea of destinations that Air Canada serves during the summer peak. You know whether it's Algiers or Geneva or Brussels, right? There's you know twenty, thirty, forty intercontinental departures. Um, and as I was kind of just skimming through that, you know, out of out of the 150-ish daily departures that they've got at at um, at Montreal, a fact that is technically true on some of the days of the week this summer, but that will be mind blowing to anyone that has a sense of the history of these two airports, is that depending on the day, there are more nonstop daily flights from Montreal to Asia than there are from Detroit to Asia on Delta Airlines, depending on the day you look. Because Detroit, Detroit is really down to Tokyo, Seoul, and the occasional Shanghai. Obviously, they, they might grow a little bit given the, the, the resumption of, of China routes. Um, but that, is, that was a mind-blowing stat for someone who was you know, born in the Detroit area um, and, and kind of followed Northwest Airlines, the first sort of airline that I um, really, I guess, quote-unquote, fell in love with. Um, so that was just a, a fascinating stat when I, when I saw it pop up on my screen a second ago. Of course, Northwest didn't have Seattle and L.A. No, um, Northwest also wasn't making any money to Asia, but that's neither here nor there. Um, it's, it's never a great sign when your Trans-Pacific hub is, you know, 1,500 miles inland. But setting that aside, um, I do think that we want to uh, actually switch into talking about that a little bit, which is that the U.S. carriers, the U.S. and China, um, have reached an agreement to allow expanded frequencies uh, between the U.S. and China. Pre-pandemic, this was a huge market. There were, you know, uh, dozens of daily flights on Chinese carriers. United and Delta both had substantial operations into and out of China. And post-pandemic, the airlines have been restricted. I believe it's to twelve frequencies um, for for carriers for Chinese carriers and twelve frequencies for U.S. carriers. They've reached an agreement to. I think nearly double that. I might be getting the numbers wrong here, but I believe it's 24 frequencies that are now allowed for carriers from each country. Um, and on the Chinese side, obviously, we're, we're going to learn more about what the Chinese carriers plan to do. But on the U.S. side, um, United has leapt right in and said that it wants to take Shanghai daily and re-add Beijing as daily flights. Um, Delta is looking to um, regrow its portfolio of of Chinese routes as well, 
an American said that it wants to expand Dallas-Shanghai already an existing route. Um, so I'm curious if, uh, you know, if either of you have a point of view on who you think the DOT are likely to allow to expand um, into China, because I think United's ask was for nearly all of the additional frequencies. And frankly, I don't think there's any way they'll be granted all of those frequencies by themselves. Uh, but I'm curious if you were sur- maybe surprised by, yeah, go ahead. The approvals are for flights beginning for IATA winter. Mm-hmm. And American doesn't want to start Shanghai daily until January. So presumably that release is timed to what they think is going the next batch of approvals. And I don't know if you're including Delta Los Angeles in there, but Delta Los Angeles has an asterisk next to it. And it basically says with government approval, but look when they want to start it, they don't want to start it on the first day that it was approved. So I I just think that I think somebody's playing some games here. Their press release says January, right? Vinay? Yes, yeah, their yeah. press release, I believe, says January. It just makes me think that that's part, that's like a different, like, they're back Early to so year. they can get. Yeah. So China has become like the new Haneda in terms of all these, you know, uh, ambitions were created and then all for naught. Like, you know, if you recall after Haneda, the earthquake happened, things went downhill after that, and it was this cat and mouse game for many years. Now China is going to be like that. I don't think that the days of the Chinese carriers that come in and flood the markets with capacity are going to come back quite yet. And not only because of recovery from the last couple of years, I also think that the political situation with China has unfortunately become very different than it was a few years ago. And so for those reasons, the political components that are involved here uh, make the entire situation a lot more precarious and nebulous. Uh, than I think it previously did. Yeah. Well, I, I think um, the route the route planning teams at the U.S. carriers are happy about that. It's it's part of what has created the space for United, for example, to really beef up its Asian offering, particularly from the San Francisco hub to you know new routes like Manila, Double Daily to Taipei, um, etc. So I I think that. The interesting dynamic to observe is, is this the start of a sort of slow progression back to more or less normal market conditions? Or is this, you know, going to be drips and drabs where route authorities are used as a political football over the next several years? And I think that that'll be interesting to observe. I think whatever the next expansion of rights beyond kind of the currently announced uh, set of expansions, whatever that next expansion looks like is going to tell us a lot about how this is going to go over the next few years. Yeah, I actually think there's a lot of money to be made in China in the short term. And uh, yeah, I know that U.S. airlines probably won't come out and say this, but I'm I'm sure they're thrilled with the situation. I mean, these are two giant countries with so much traffic. And, you know, when you cap artificially cap the number of flights well below the demand, you know, prices increase dramatically. So I, I, you know, U.S. on the margins, airlines might ask for a few more flights, but they know that every time they ask for flights, uh, the other side gets flights as well. And so I, I think U.S. carriers are going to lean on regulators, whether they say it or not, to keep the numbers down for the foreseeable future. Not, not nothing, 
But, you know, every time they add flights, they're going to know what's going to happen to fares and it's not going to be a good thing. So this is kind of a this kind of a good situation for, for U.S. carriers. And they certainly don't have to worry about that problem they had before the pandemic, where there was all that cheap connecting traffic going through China. Yeah, as U.S. China traffic expands backwards or expands again, um, Philippine Airlines margins hardest hit. That's my theory. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It's truly an inverted world, right? It it, it really is. I think the other thing that's interesting is Cathay does not have some of the same restrictions, right? But they have not gotten back to anywhere near the same level of capacity. So I think that does speak to the fact that I agree that relative to the current set of, you know, 14 or 24 flights, um, there is way more demand between the U.S. and China, and that's going to be pretty profitable for the airlines to serve given the capacity constraints. But I also think that um, demand between the U.S. and both mainland China and Hong Kong is definitely lower than it was pre-pandemic in a way that's not quite true for other Asian markets that have seen a rebound, um, or certainly European markets and, and, and such. But I want to go back to a crack that you made a, a few minutes ago about Northwest, where you said it's it's never a good thing when your Asia hub is 1,500 miles inland. I don't know that Dallas-Fort Worth is necessarily 1,500 miles inland technically, but it certainly isn't near the Pacific Ocean. And it's kind of amazing that that's the best that American Airlines has right now for Asia flights. Yeah, no, that it, it's it's a absolutely wild situation because pre sort of pre pandemic, you know, 2015, 2016 era, they were flying triple sevens from, you know, Los Angeles to Seoul and to Hong Kong and to Tokyo. And now I think they're just Seoul. down to it was just Hong Kong, but not Hong Kong. It was Beijing, Beijing, it was Beijing, Shanghai, Beijing yeah, Hong Kong. And then they had a couple to Tokyo. Did they not have LA LA to Seoul? I mean, either way, they tried. They tried to build LA up as the um, as the as a Latin to Asia gateway because they had added Sao Paulo and Buenos Aires from LAX, and then pretty much as soon as the pandemic happened, they chopped all of those markets from LAX long haul, and allegedly they were not making. Allegedly, I think. I don't know if it was allegedly. (laughs) Clearly, they were not making. (laughs) You could see the sheer terror on their faces during the conference calls for each quarterly earnings when they had to talk about LAX. I I don't think it was was that far under the surface. Um, And then right before the pandemic, they kind of seemed to pivot into fighting Delta in Seattle, sort of. But then that obviously the pandemic blew that up, that plan up before it could ever get going. And yeah, you know, to, to your point, um, arguably in some ways, uh, American today is worse off than Northwest because at least Northwest had, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, they had the, the auto industry traffic, O&D demand and business travel to fill the front of the cabin to Asia, right? I don't even know if you really have that to, in, in the post-pandemic era. And yet this is American's trans-Pacific gateway. <laughs> Um, yeah, the DFW the, people are trying to spin it as something I, I've heard from other airports in the past. Uh, you know, there's no great way to get from from Asia to South America, and you know that that DFW hub is not poorly positioned geographically to do it. Uh, but it, it, it's a tough sell. Yeah, I mean, like they still lost a lot of DFW. I mean, DFW Mexico and Caribbean and even Central America, I think, is doing wonderfully. But like 
they've lost Lima, they've lost Guayaquil, they've lost Quito. Uh, so, you know, if we're talking about South America, like, it's not like DFW has seen a ton of love down there. I think what and that's calling out for is a uh, <clears throat> nonstop flight from Tokyo Narita to Miami, which is the funniest rumor that I hear on, on oh, airliners.net from time to time. Well, and I, I, I think it's so interesting. I was just thinking today about this hot topic that is, which is the leaked, not leaked, but actual social media video of the American Airlines routes for summer 2024 that will be announced tomorrow morning on August 17th at whatever time o'clock. Um, but even on this podcast, we've yet to discuss the switching of JFK to Doha to Philadelphia. We haven't really gone into what American plans to do out of Miami or Philadelphia or out of Chicago for the next couple of years. And uh, it's true that American Airlines has kind of gotten this international strategy that's a little bit all over the place in Asia and to a lesser extent to Europe. And South America seems to be the most consistent of all of all the regions, but we, we've yet to know what, what kind of uh, things will come its way. And American is hampered by the fact that it has retired its 757s, the 767s, and the A330s. I remember we were actually recording an episode with uh, Will Horton. Shout out to Will, from uh, formerly from Center Asia Pacific Aviation. We were literally recording live the week of the pandemic when American had just announced that it was retiring all those planes. Uh, and those planes are still in use by United and Delta, respectively, in each of those kind of categories that has provided a ton of lift in international transatlantic and some trans-Pacific. We need to do a better job of not referencing American Airlines' wide-body retirements on every episode, because I feel like we've talked about it every single time so far. Um, and at some point, we've got to stop beating a dead horse or kicking a dead horse when it's down or whatever the, the turn of phrase is. Um, but, but yeah, so, so just, to, just to put some, um, some more color behind this, we're, we're going to be guessing this on the night of August 16th. I want to state that for the record, so in case we are wrong, um, we get some, some grace because by the time you listen to this, in all likelihood, these routes will be announced. But Americans said that they will be announcing DFW to, quote, somewhere hot, uh, Philadelphia to, quote, somewhere fun, somewhere new, and somewhere glitzy, and ORD, so Chicago O'Hare, to somewhere classic. And I think the funniest possible thing for Americans to do would be to announce five extra frequencies to LHR because LHR is hot in the summer, it's fun, it's, you know new frequency to LHR, it's glitzy at LHR, and it's classic at LHR. And I think that would be the absolute best troll of all time. That's what I'm going to I'm, I'm gonna put my money on. Um, Very not good really, answer. but I'm curious if you have guesses. Evening. I don't like these games. I mean, I, I, I presume that American is going to fly where its customers want to fly. And again, that that's something that may sound like a cop out. But, you know, uh, before the pandemic.